Broken Entertainment, a podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and with it, with me as always is a woman who ne- who will never be mistaken as deaf and dumb. It's Lydia. <laughs> oh, thanks. Here I was expecting something about being, you know, mystical or sphinx-like. No. <laughs> However, I'd... you know, if the shoe fits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to admit, I was struggling to come up with any kind of pun for this intro. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's funny. The, the title that we're working on this week isn't really doesn't have anything to do with the movie again yay another yes. movie the title doesn't have anything to do with <laughs> yeah, it yeah i figured i figured we'd get into that later absolutely well listen before we start i want to first thank everyone for tuning in and for anyone who hasn't already let you know that you can listen and subscribe to the show by visiting apple Podcasts, stitcher radio google play uh, we may even be on tune in uh, with lots of different places and you can go to any podcatcher and just search for us, and you can find us there. I do ask if that outlet offers uh, ratings and reviews. Please do so. Uh, that helps people find the podcast, and we're always grateful for new listeners. You can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook.com and search for Orphaned Entertainment. If you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback to, on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. We have a YouTube channel where you can go and watch many of the films that we've covered here on the podcast. And if you subscribe there, you can get kind of a little uh, preview of what we're going to be covering next because I usually post the film uh, several weeks before we actually discuss it. All these links can be found on our webpage at orphanedentertainment.com. That's all the fancy house cleaning and everything. So let's take a break and listen to another five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we'll uncover the mystery of the Sphinx. Well, no, not that one. A different one. You'll see. Another five-minute mystery. Dr. Greenwood speaking. Oh, Dr. Greenwood. Dr. Greenwood, this is Mrs. Barnes. Yes? Something horrible has happened. My husband... What's happened to him? He seemed well this morning. The medicine you left. He's killed himself with it. Oh, uh, Dr. Greenwood. Where's your mistress? Mrs. Barnes is upstairs in her bedroom. She's taken this very badly, doctor. Isn't there anyone with her? No. Mrs. Barnes only phoned you and Mr. Graham. Graham? Speedy Graham. He's the manager of the Blue Sox, the baseball team. Mr. Barnes pitched for them. Oh, well, where is his body? Well, right in this next room, sir. Won't you step this way? Has anyone been in here since since Mr. Barnes died? Well, no, sir. Well, that is... Uh... Sorry, Dr. Greenwood, that I couldn't be here to greet you. I understand completely, Miss Barnes. I'm still hardly able to think clearly. Please, try to tell me what happened. Well, after you left this morning, Mr. Barnes became very difficult. You mean about the injections I told you to give him? Yes. He thought that I wouldn't know how to handle the hypodermic. He begged me to send for you. And then? And what happened? Well, I came in about two this afternoon. Right into this room, I saw him putting the hypodemic needle into his own arm. His face was contorting with pain. Yes? I cried out to him. He slumped to the ground, pale as a ghost. And a few minutes later, 
He was dead. Hmm. Look, you can still see the mark of the needle there on his left arm. Yeah, so you can. So you can. Oh, answer that, please, Gertrude. It's probably speedy. Said he'd be over as soon as he could make it. You say, Mrs. Barnes, that your husband became very pale? Yes. And... Oh, please, Dr. Greenwood, don't make me describe it to you again. It was too horrible. Mrs. Barnes, I don't know what to say. It, it's been a great shock. Oh, thank you, Speedy. I know how you feel. Mr. Graham, do you know of any reason why Mr. Barnes would have wanted to take his own life? Why, no, sir, I can't think of any. Always seemed happy to me. Excepting for this last spell, always had good health, made good money. Why, he was the best southpaw in the business. I see. Mrs. Barnes, you've had a hard few hours. Why don't you rest while I take care of the details? Mr. Graham, I don't think I'd waste any sympathy with Mrs. Barnes. I'm going to have her arrested on the charge of murdering her husband. Why does Dr. Greenwood accuse Mrs. Barnes of murdering her husband? In a moment, the doctor will tell you himself, but first... Okay, you know what it's like. You're flicking through Amazon or the local DVD shop when suddenly you discover a film that you haven't seen in years, but which you remember as being legendary. The purchase is hastily made, you invite friends over, make popcorn and settle down to watch this classic. But then it becomes apparent that your mind has double-crossed you, and that this film is frankly awful. Soon your friends have deserted you, your boss says he has to let you go, and even your dog won't come when you call. How did it go so wrong? Well, in the interests of public harmony, a new podcast, I Saw That Years Ago, sets out to watch the old films that your memory has convinced you are brilliant, but which in reality could be anything but. So join me, your host, Martin Darkley, and my compatriot, Gentleman Joe, as we watch the old films so you don't have to. Find us at www.isawthatyearsago.com or on iTunes. And now, let's see if your observation is as keen as Dr. Greenwood. And to tell you the truth, I was puzzled in the beginning. I couldn't understand how he could have killed himself with a harmless preparation that I had prescribed. But how did you connect Mrs. Barnes to the murder? Her story and the telltale needle mark on his left arm. You see, Barnes was a southpaw, a left-handed pitcher. If he had really given himself a needle, the mark would have been on the right arm. <laughs> everyone. Yes, 1933's The Sphinx was a monogram picture and was directed by Phil Rosen. This is the second film we've talked about with Rosen in a director's chair. The first being Three of a Kind, which we just covered, I don't know, it was only about six months ago, I think. <laughs> Phil Rosen was a founding member of the American Society of Cinematographers. He actually um, he came from New York to L.A. and there was, I think, two groups. It was kind of like an East Coast and a West Coast group of cinematographers. And he helped kind of found a group that sort of created a uh, all-encompassing. Mm, uh, and that's nice. what the American Society of Cinematographers is. He was actually he was born in Russia and raised in Maine. 
And uh, he went on to work as a projectionist and lab technician before becoming a cinematographer around 1912. He came to California in 1918 to photograph the George Lone Tucker's The Miracle, and the success of the film brought brought Rosen an offer to direct from Universal. And over the next 30 years, he helmed some 140 films. He directed Rudolph Valentino in The Young Raja in 1922, and one of the most acclaimed films of the silent era, The Dramatic Life of Abraham Lincoln in 1924. But more often than not, you'll find his name attached to a lot of these low-budget quickie films. A couple of Charlie Chan in there, I saw. Mm Mm-hmm. Rosen was also active in the formation of the Screen Directors Guild, and he also served on the board and as the treasurer. He was very uh, very involved in Hollywood, a lot of the early days of Hollywood, and actually kind of creating a lot of the organizations and things that we know today. This film stars Lionel Atwill as Jerome Bream, Sheila Terry as Jerry Crane, Theodore Newton as Jack Burton, and Robert Ellis as Inspector James Riley. And speaking of reoccurring faces, Robert Ellis apparently appeared as Reynolds in Phantom Express. Mm-hmm. But not that I recognize the role. <laughs> his face but, is a little familiar, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've apparently seen his work before, but I'm not sure exactly what that... I'd have to go back and watch Phantom Express <laughs> to find out who he Pick was. Him out. <laughs> now, supposedly, George Gabby Hayes was appeared in this film uncredited as Detective Casey, which I think is the detective that was outside the office uh, in one of the early scenes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Gabby Hayes played Wendy Halliday for several years, who was the sidekick to William Boyd's Hopalong Cassidy. Nice. Of course, we just talked about him last month, so I thought that was an interesting little connection there. Unexpected connection. Lionel Atwill was born in 1885 in Croydon, London, he studied architecture before his stage before he went into acting. His stage bu- debut was in 1904. He moved to the United States and found many roles on Broadway, and eventually made his screen debut in the silent comedy film Eve's Daughter in 1918. He acted really all over the world because he was actually on stage in Australia before coming involved in the U.S. horror film roles in the 1930s. Interesting. Yeah, he would be found as the uh, disfigured sculptor in Mystery of the Wax <laughs> Museum in 1933. And then he appeared in Son of Frankenstein in 39. In total, from 1918 to the time of his death in 1946, he had 77 acting credits. Now a little bit of interesting trivia about Lionel. I had to double check to see if this was really true, but apparently there is. There's newspaper articles and everything. 1942, Atwill was indicted for perjury by a jury investigating the 1941 proceeding of a grand jury relative to the alleged occurrence of a showing of X-rated and or an orgy at his home. Whoa. (laughs) He was given five years probation for the crime. However, Hollywood producers and executives effectively blacklisted him afterwards. Uh, So the leading roles, yeah, so the leading roles would always go to somebody else. And Atwell settled for making appearances in small films and in minor roles. So an interest that was an interesting kind of it's a shame it's kind of a a rough end to a career there. <laughs> it is. I, I have to call this out because we watched this so many times when I was a kid at my dad's house. He was Olivia De Havilland's father in Captain Blood, 
And so it's funny, you watch it, and you're like, God, that guy looks familiar. Why do I know him? Well, it's because you watched him, like, every weekend when you were a kid, Mm. but in so many things. Interesting, yeah, and it's just... I'm used to seeing him in these smaller, these smaller films. These kind of mm-hmm. the, the horror films, the Son of Frankenstein, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, and all the that was the yeah, yeah. And a lot of that was before this happened. It was just mm-hmm. a shame that so for someone who was performing all over the world was a star on Broadway, and he gets taken down for well for people naughtiness thinking, naughtiness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's unfortunate. Well, let's get into the film a little bit here. That's all the background. I'm afraid I didn't have any information on any of the other actors. They are, as often is the case, just kind of character actors that you know employed by the studios that would appear in many of these types of films. So, unfortunately, don't have a whole lot of information on them. So, we'll just go ahead and get into the film. The Sphinx from 1933 opens outside the offices of Garfield Investments. A well-dressed man exits and walks down the hall. He stops and asks the cleaning man for a match and the correct time. The cleaning man lights the man's cigar and gives him the time, wants to know exactly what he's doing there because the building is supposed to be closed for the night. The man thanks the cleaning man and walks off. Cleaner walks down to the office and finds another man lying on the floor, dead. He takes a healthy swig from a bottle he pulls from his pocket and then calls the police. Later, the police examined the body and determined that he was strangled to death. They questioned the cleaning man, Luigi, and he tells him of the man he saw earlier. Outside the office, a reporter, Jack Burton, tries to get past the detective at the door. Come on, Casey, give. I got a date with Inspector Riley. Sure you have. Only Riley don't know it. Will you go on in and tell him? Then he will know it. Come on, scram. Now, you know Riley always lets me in on a murder. How'd you know this was a murder? Easy. I made a quick checkup on the population of the city and found out we were one short. Yeah? Well, if you don't get out of here, we're going to be two short. Ah, you admit it. I'd be victim number two, so who was number one? Garfield. Garfield. Where did I read something about him today? Now listen here. I remember. The Garfield Investment Company was petitioning the bankruptcy this morning. Another stockbroker gone the way of all flesh. Another stockbroker? Say, Casey, run in and tell Riley I gotta see him. I got a clue. But, uh, come on now, Casey, come on. I'm sorry, sir, but that Burton guy from the Chronicle is outside. You mean inside? Now listen. All right, Casey, all right. Once in the office, Burton and the police inspector Riley and Detective Hogan discover, uh, discuss the murder and the fact that uh, the M.O. is just like several others they're investigating, including the gentleman asking for a match and the time. It's all, it's all happened before in several different murders that we haven't seen. So we're, we're, re- we're stepping right into the middle of a crime wave. Well, later back at the newsroom, we meet Jerry Crane. She's apparently the reporter for the uh, paper's society pages and also the girlfriend of Mr. Burton. And quite pretty. She is very attractive, actually. She is very, she is very pretty. And this is an interesting exchange between these two. He's trying to get her to marry him, but she's putting him off. Apparently she's dealing with a, maybe a possibly sick mother yeah, uh, and bills and, and everything. But she doesn't want to – she wants to handle the burden herself and not dump it on Jack by marrying him. I thought that was uh, an interesting take for a 1933 woman. 
It is. Well, and, you know, I kind of took it as her thinking he's not serious because he could be this great writer. But as she says, he spends all his time in the police station chasing down murders and, you know, all these other stories about death. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's a little bit of a an angle, as they used to call it, where she wants a guy that's a little more serious about his job and is going to stick around for a while, probably. Right. Well, she also tells Jack that she thinks that he is wasting his talents by being a crime reporter and focusing on the sensationalism. This conversation is stopped by Detective Hogan showing up to announce that they have a suspect in custody, thanks to the Luigi the Cleaning Man. <laughs> Hogan just stopped by to make sure Burton gets his name spelled right, especially that middle name, Aloysius, which he spells out and Burton jots down as Detective A. Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> Hogan leaves, and Burton asks Jerry what she knows about Jerome Breen. He's shown up a lot in the society pages. She fills him in a little. He's well-liked and wealthy, and has been very charitable with all that wealth. Well, Burton drops the bombshell that Breen is the one who's been arrested for the murder of Garfield. Now, I do have to admit, I, I found it, I think there's a little sloppiness in the writing. Hogan comes to give him the, the scoop but apparently Burton was there when they arrested Breen. Yeah, I, I kind of got that as him saying, hey, I'm, I'm here to spell the name for you and bring you a photo. At which point he, of course, presents his own photo as the arresting detective, which right. isn't what they were looking for. But <laughs> um, I, it, it, there, throughout this movie, there is, there is a little bit of convenience dropped in here and there where things are happening and you're thinking, well, it's a little too convenient. And this is one yeah. of those moments, I think. All right. Well, Jerry is shocked at this news. Not only has he been a uh, kind and charitable person, she points out that Luigi spoke to the man who he has d- identified as Breen. But Breen is a deaf mute. We cut to the trial of Mr. Breen and we see him with his attorney. The attorney says that the prosecutor looks worried. Breen gets the attention of another man at the table and does a series of elaborate hand movements. The man translates this as, if the attorney has any hopes of winning, he should be worried. So Breen can lip-read and uses his unique sign language to communicate (laughs) through his butler, Jenks. His unique and completely unreadable finger-wiggling sign language. Yeah. That's a real disappointment in this film. I, I, I looked it up because I was curious when American Sign Language came out. <laughs> American Sign Language had been around for about 100 years by the time mm-hmm. this film was made. They could have so, done something. And I think yeah. at first they kind of, it almost feels like in, in some scenes they intentionally hide his hands below mm. the camera angle. But yes. when you can see it, it's very distracting. Yeah, no, most, if you could actually see his hand, he looks like he's just wadding up a piece of paper and throwing yes. it away. Yeah, they're, they're, and they're, occasionally they're... karate chopping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just unfortunately they didn't try a little harder with the uh, with the sign language. Yeah, it's kind of. I feel like it's kind of one of those products of the times where back then people weren't aware of American Sign Language. It wasn't. They weren't as exposed to it. You didn't have TV where you saw it all the time, and you know Possibly. you didn't see it. You know, you just didn't see it that much, and so fewer people were likely to be aware that it wasn't legitimate. I suppose. And, and that would be an additional expense to get someone to come in and try to yeah. teach him any sign language. So He was already being taught elocution, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, the trial begins and Luigi is on the stand recounting the night of the murder. 
He positively points out Breen is the man he saw and spoke to that night. <laughs> Luigi's defend- kind of kind of funny. They've got it, it's worth mentioning. There's some cute gags throughout this thing. The, the lines there's some cute lines throughout it, mm-hmm. and and you really have to pay attention to catch onto it. But I love Luigi's testimony because he has the jury laughing. <laughs> yes, and it's it's so not what you're expecting to see in a courtroom scene. Yeah, what was it? Um- they ask him if he, if he was taking a, some swigs of whiskey or something. And I never like, drink whiskey in my life. It right. was gin. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was That was gin. Russian, and he's Italian. But yeah, <laughs> the point is it was gin. It wasn't whiskey. <laughs> the defense attorney says that he will prove that Breen couldn't have been the man there that night by proving that he cannot hear or speak. The trial goes on with Breen and a doctor taking the stand. The whole time, Burton is in the audience telling Jerry that he doesn't believe a word of it. He knows Breen is guilty, somehow. (laughs) The trial, in the end, acquits Breen of all charges. (laughs) Nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I love that. The little note at the bottom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Jerry typing out the story and just doesn't know what else to say. Nuts. (laughs) (laughs) At the news office, Jerry tries to tell Burton that he just had the wrong idea about Breen, but he's still convinced that somehow Breen is guilty. Burton asks Jerry if she uh, wants to grab some food, but uh, Jerry already has plans. She's seen uh, none other than Jerome Breen. Apparently he wants to thank her for all the nice articles she's written about him. Hey, I'll be through this in a minute. How about time on the old feedback? I'm sorry, I have an engagement. Yeah? Who's the lucky guy? A very, very dear friend of yours. All right, who is it? Mr. Jerome Breen. Jerome Breen? Mm-hmm. Mr. Breen dropped me a note thanking me for my kindness and the articles I wrote about him during the trial. Invite me to his home. Jerry, you're not really going up that fellow's house. Well, of course I am. I talked to the boss about it, and he's going to pay me extra money for a series of articles on Breen. Listen, baby, honey, listen. I know there's something screwy about that guy. Why, the idea of you being along with him would drive me crazy. Oh, Jack, pull yourself together. Why, everyone you see lately is a boogeyman. This criminal court assignment of yours must be getting on your nerves. Jerry, if you go up to that man's house, I'll... Well, that'll be swell. Only don't make it a habit. Well, Jerry arrives at the house of Jerome Breen. With Jenks acting as interpreter, Breen thanks Jerry and also lays on the compliments and charm. <laughs> Meanwhile, Burton meets with Luigi at a local bar. I have a question. Before we get to that, I'm curious. Sure. Okay, well, no, I'll get to that later. (laughs) I have to wait till till the part where I won't spoil anything. Go ahead. All right, all right. (laughs) To the bar. Let's go to the bar. (laughs) Burton meets up with Luigi at a local bar. He again tries to figure out if Luigi saw and heard what he thought. Hello, Louis. Hello, Mr. Burton. Well, when you give up drinking gin? Uh, me first drink the wine, then the prohibition she comes, and me and all the good American citizens drink the gin. Then the law, he says, we must drink the beer. So me, Luigi Bacigalupe, drink the beer. Have one on me, huh? No, thanks. I'm not drinking. Kind of worried. What are you worried about? I am worried, too. What do you got to be worried about? I am worried 
How am I going to get out of here? What do you mean? <laughs> see, see, it's like it is. I eat the pretzels, then I get thirsty. I drink a glass of the beer, and when the glass of the beer goes down, I get hungry again, then I eat the pretzels, and I wonder, worry, what is going to be the end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's tough, all right. Hey, listen, Louie. Yeah. Are you dead sure it was Breen you were talking to the night of the Garfield murder? That's what I say in court, isn't it? Ah, I know, old man, but nobody seems to believe you. Now, uh, after all, you know, you were drinking pretty heavily that night, weren't you? You might have been mistaken, huh? Say, Luigi Bacigalupe only make one mistake in his life, and I marry her. <laughs> all right, now cut out the Second Avenue comedy stuff, will you, and listen to me. Maybe you did have one drink too many, huh? Maybe you were seeing things, huh? Say, a few shots of jeans means to me as much as a glass of milk means to you. <laughs> I was brought up in it. I mean, uh, the gin, not the milk. <laughs> but man alive, how could it have been Breen you were talking to if he couldn't talk? Say, this is the last time I'm going to speak to you about this. I know what is what, and I know what is what not. If I have to decide, and what judges and lawyers and the like, and what I see with my own eyes, I stick to what I see with my own eyes. Say, that guy Brain is a bad egg. And anybody that gets mixed up with him is going to be in trouble sooner or later. Maybe sooner. I, I feel like in this scene, there, he, okay, tell me if you feel the same way. I feel like in this part, Jack is like pushing Luigi, like trying to like rile him up to see if he'll slip almost. Like, he, he believes Luigi, but he wants just Luigi to confirm it one more time that there's no way he could possibly be wrong. Yeah, no, I think I agree with that. What the Breen estate, a Mr. Werner calls on Mr. Breen. Jerry, realizing that it's gotten very late, says goodbye and leaves. Jenks tells Werner that he thinks Mr. Breen will see him now. Werner says he better if he knows what's good for him. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> And then we cut. I can't believe yeah. it doesn't show any of their conversation. And this is one of those moments where I'm like, what happened? Did we lose a scene? It, ha. Ah, well, really yeah, it's like another, it's a weird says. thing. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird thing. We get, we get a character we haven't seen before and we get this brief, you know, oh, he better see me, blah, blah. And then, then he's gone. They're like, mm -hmm. what the heck was that? <laughs> well, and, and then I was even confused. I didn't realize who it was. You know, I'm watching it saying, wait, who is that? Is that? You know, is that one of the detectives again? Is that the newspaper guy again? And it just is just some random guy. Yeah, I'll admit the the first time I watched it, when that guy shows up, I thought it was Jack Burton showing mm -hmm. up. I did but, too. Yeah. But suddenly, oh, it's Mister Werner. Like, oh, all right, who did I miss? Somebody? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as you said, we do cut. We cut to the police station outside of Inspector Riley's office. Hogan has apparently just gotten an earful and warns that they just arrived Burton not to go in. But he, of course, does anyway. <laughs> Burton and Riley do the usual police-slash-reporter banter until Mr. Werner shows up, the guy who we had never saw before. We see again. He shows up at the police station. <laughs> Burton explains that Werner had called him and that Burton then told him to meet at him at the police station that this man may have some info on the murders. The inspector goes to listen from another room, and Werner comes in. He tells Burton he may know someone tied to the Garfield murder. Burton should show up at Werner's place at 8.30 that night with some reward money. Around 8 p.m., Mr. Breen shows up at the Werner house. Mrs. Werner, his mother, greets Breen and tells him that Werner is upstairs taking a nap. 
Breen jots something down on a pad of paper, shows her, and she directs him upstairs. At around 8.10, Burton and Inspector Riley leave the police station to meet Werner. About that same time, Breen comes back down the stairs. He asks Mrs. Werner if she has the correct time, which shocks her to the point of fainting. Later, Burton is comforting Mrs. Werner as the inspector announces that Werner has been strangled to death. Just like the others. Burton and Riley go straight to Breen's and accuse him of murdering Werner. Breen, through Jenks, deflects the accusations and claims that he's been right there asleep on the couch since 6 o'clock. This is, I think this is the first part where, I, I was going to say this is the first part where I'm interested in Breen, but that's not quite accurate. As you're going through, like, each little scene, they don't focus intensely on him, but he's so laid back and almost amused at everything mm-hmm. that he's either, he's kind of suspicious, <laughs> just just from the fact that he's so amused and he never gets defensive about it. Oh, good point. But at the same it at the same time, he's this apparently wealthy, well-bred, well-mannered man, you know, and so he's not necessarily going to jump up off the sofa and start punching people. Right. So it's interesting. I he's an interesting character cuz you're going I'm not you're not really sure what's going on with this guy. And the doctors have said he is a deaf mute and you're kind of like, "Well, okay, wait." <laughs> well, but we've seen him talk, but presumably the doctors couldn't be tricked but then he's so calm about all the accusations and kind of seems amused about it uh we haven't really talked too much about any of the characters being more interested more interesting or not interesting but he kind of is building on you throughout this whole this whole portion well the whole movie i suppose Mm -hmm. yeah they do an interesting job of really making you well i think they they it's all designed to sort of make the audience sit there and go, what in the world is going on? I mean, mm. they do kind of build the mystery really well with this character and mm. with what, you've, what you're seeing. He is so mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> like the Sphinx. Yeah, we didn't actually like get into that. That's a good time. We, it almost, we should have got into it when we were talking about the, um, you know, when he meets uh, Jerry and talks to her. And um, I think it's actually in the one of the papers that you see before the trial that apparently the name Sphinx actually comes from uh, Burton uh, yeah, dubs it, him that in his article with no real explanation other than the fact that I, like you said I guess he's mysterious he's mysterious and silent uh, you have to think about Egypt was really big back back then uh, Tut's True. tomb was only discovered in the 1920s if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken and so, you know, anything that's mysterious and ancient-seeming, although I'm not saying that Lionel Atwell looks old, but right. <laughs> anything that's, you know, really mysterious and kind of foreign, you know, is going to take an Egyptian turn for a little while here. Yeah, well, I have a feeling, though, too, this this title, it, it, it did exactly the, what it was set out to do for me anyway. It was designed to get people in the seats, a little bit like high voltage. Yeah. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> And that's exactly it. I, I saw the name Sphinx. And I thought, oh, it's a murder mystery, but it, oh, maybe it takes place in Egypt, and yes, maybe there's yeah, no, exactly. nothing. All right. Well, so, yeah, I, I kind of expected. Oh, yeah. I suppose we're kind of skipping on to the end of the conversation. Yeah, we are. Sorry, <laughs> we digress. Yeah. So getting back to the plot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we where would we where we leave off? Burton and Riley are talking the Breen. Well, Riley tests Breen by going behind him and firing a shot out the door. Breen shows no reaction. 
what we, the audience, see is actually Jenks give him a very slight hand movement, so, so a gesture or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. We see a little bit that, you know, kind of prepares, maybe prepares Breen for something. Somehow I missed that. Every time I watched it, I didn't see the hand motion. So thank you. You just clarified something for me a lot. Because yeah, I thought I knew. Later on, I thought, okay, so I think I know what must have happened. But that actually, now I now I know, and it wasn't what I thought happened. It's it's very subtle, and it wouldn't be noticed. But the camera does change ever so slightly to focus a little bit on Jenks. And he, just put the, he puts his hand to the side, and you see him do just this very slight gesture. Like a little, and it's enough yeah, for Breen to notice it right before uh, Riley fires his gun. Well, Burton notices that Breen has a piano and wonders why, if he can't hear music, does he even have one? Jenks tells him that it's for the enjoyment of his guests. <laughs> he's, he's such a good host. He is. <laughs> Burton runs his fingers along the keys, and Riley notices Breen seemingly reacting to the noise. Breen also notices that Riley noticed him. <laughs> Riley quickly tells Burton that they should leave and apologizes to Breen for disturbing him. As the two men leave, Riley tells Burton what he saw. He tells him it has given him an idea, but he wants to sleep on it. Burton should meet him at his office at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Inside, Jenks tells Breen that the copper is onto something, and he also knows that Burton is sweet on Jerry. If Breen isn't careful, he's going to ruin a sweet racket all on account of a skirt. So there's and something sh- interesting. Yeah, there's something interesting in this scene, uh, and it, I I noticed it both times, but I was curious if you picked up on it when uh, <laughs> and I've lost his name completely. Jenks. J- yes, when Jenks is talking to Breen, mm-hmm. you know, you always have Breen is always looking at him, and we know that Breen can read lips because they mention it a couple of times. But then at one point as he's talking, Breen turns away and Jenks reaches out and touches his elbow and Breen turns back to him and he starts talking again. And so it's such an, and I don't know if it's intentional or if it is in, or if it was intended by the director, but it's just a little confirmation that this guy wouldn't know what Jenks is saying if he didn't reach out and touch him. It's like... <laughs> I mm. I might just be the queen of reading into things, <laughs> but I noticed it both times, and he definitely reaches out and like kind of grabs his arm before he starts talking again. Before Breen, you know, and then Breen, Breen turns around to look and he starts talking. So right. it's interesting because even though Breen has very clearly reacted to the piano, mm-hmm. it's like it's it's like Jenks still has to reach out and get his attention so that he can read his lips again. It's just an, it's just an interesting little moment. Absolutely. Well, I, I like too. In this moment, you get another sort of crumb to the to the trying to piece together the mysteries. Jenks through the entire film is very slow, calm, well spoken, even with a little bit almost like a, a some you know indeterminate foreign accent. A but when he's yelling, yes. but when he's yelling at Breen at this time, suddenly he goes into like Chicago mob yes, accent or something. Yeah. Yeah, it was so, it was interesting. I all think, is you know, not as like it I said, seems. they keep building up an interesting mystery throughout this thing. They do. Well, Breen ponders for a moment after hearing Jenks, and then goes to the piano. He pushes the far right key, which opens a secret panel in the wall, and he enters the hidden room. Nine a.m. the next morning, Burton shows up at the station to meet Riley, but learns that Inspector Riley is dead, murdered by strangulation. And I went, what? 
What? He's just what? Riley. Riley was a good character. I yes. will admit. And I, I would go so far as to say he, up to this point, has been the if if Breen is truly a bad guy and he's evil, which he does come across as a little bit. The only match for him up until now has been Riley. Yeah, I was a little surprised uh, that it happened. It was an interesting twist on the story. Um, it is actually where I'm going to stop the synopsis because we're at like the 45 minute mark, <laughs> and it's only about an hour film. It's a little over an hour, so there's 15 minutes, and I you, you start pretty much all the uh, answers are given in the next 15 minutes. So yeah. I don't want to give anything away if anyone's curious to find the answer to this mystery. Which yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I. Yeah. I this is another one of those scenes, though, where it almost feels like they skipped something. Because up until now, any time that we've been involved in the mystery and somebody has died, you've seen something to do with how they died. And then and then Burton walks in and it's just, oh, yeah, the inspector's dead. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. Like, are... It's almost like if it were now, you'd be like, "Nah, he's coming back in the next movie." You know, <laughs> you have to, right. you, Pixar didn't happen, so it's such a weird. There are a couple of times in this where they, it's like they skipped an entire scene several times through this movie. Yeah, and I was a little surprised that they didn't have Hogan reacting a little differently because Hogan was, you know, Riley's or Riley was Hogan's superior, and you mm-hmm. assume kind of the guy that was grooming Hogan for eventually taking his place. And you thought you'd get, I thought for just a minute that you're going to get a moment where Hogan was like, he was starting out to saying, you know, I've for years, I've been bucking for this, for this position. And I'm like, okay, here it comes. And he says, and now I have, I get it with five unsolved murders on my plate. I I was waiting for the, and I have to get it this way or I have to get it under these circumstances. Me too. I thought thought, somebody would say he was such a good guy. I can't believe he's dead. I I thought somebody would show some remorse, but it's like, no, they killed him. What? When? Last night. Whoa. I can't believe it. Well, let me talk to the new guy. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) You're not even a little sad. You've been working next to this guy for years. And I had actually, I'd actually kind of come to like Hogan because I thought he was just a good guy. He's trying to do his job. Maybe he's a little gruff, but he's he's all right. But then that happens. I'm like, I well, don't like you as much and, anymore. <laughs> and I felt the same way about Burton because here he has, you know, he has this quippy interchange with Riley earlier, where he says, you know, he says, "Oh, I'm here for a drink," and Riley says, "You got to be crazy to be in a in a police station for a drink." And he, and then Burton says, "Well, what's the city coming to if you can't get a drink in a police station?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> and they just, you know, he kind of ignores him, but you can tell he's used to him, and they get along well. And mm-hmm. then Burton just is like, "Oh, his wife." Found him. Oh, that sucks. Okay, moving on. What? Right. Wait, there's no no sadness at all. It's just it's the most shocking moment in the movie. No, <laughs> it's not. But it's oh, that really. Yeah, I never cared for Burton through this. I, I I can't think of actually one moment that I really liked Burton because if if not just because of the way this character had to be written, there had to be somebody that constantly believed that Breen was guilty. Mm-hmm. But he never had any reason to believe Breen was guilty other than this, you know, newspaper man's hunch or whatever that he must have had. And so he always just comes across as being a bit of a born an idiot. <laughs> that that, or just, you know, resentful of this guy that's taken his, his old girlfriend, you know. Or, oh, po- yeah, possibly. Yeah, you don't... He's... It, most of the characters in this are very two-dimensional. 
There's mm-hmm. not a lot of depth to anybody. And I feel like the closest you come to depth, aside from Breen, is Riley. And then, poof, he's gone. I suppose Jerry has a little bit of depth to her. At least she's sticking up for the guy she thinks is innocent. But right. <laughs> beside, beside that, you know, yeah, you're, it, there's a lot of glossing over in this movie. Yeah, quite a bit. Quite a bit. And it's kind of unfortunate because, like we were saying, they do a great job of building a mystery. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, I'm interested. How is this happening? Is this is it, is it a double? Is he is he a uh, uh, what do you call it? A, like a split personality oh, or something? Yeah. I was like, oh, that I thought that might be interesting. I was like, where was where was psychology and, and that sort of stuff at this time in in the 20th century? Well, yeah, was, is he being framed by somebody that's making themselves up to look like him? Like, what's going right, on? Yeah, exactly. There's so many different options, but then everybody else in it. It's just it's very it seems kind of forced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think so too. And the fact that then the answers are are all literally dumped on you in the mm-hmm. last even like ten minutes of the film, and it's like it almost feels like a, a Scooby Doo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I would have gotten away for it with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Well, and let's and it, pull off the mask. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yes. Well, and it, it's interesting. It makes me wonder. Well, specifically, it makes me think that it's got to be the the content it's got to be the material that he, that the director had to work with there's some quippy stuff in it and well or yeah who knows <laughs> cuz there's not really exceptional there's not really exceptional direction in it it's fine right it's it's fair there's nothing that stands out in the directing itself as being really harsh or or failing heavily um this is 3 years before 3 of a kind and 3 of a kind in comparison is much much better Mm -hmm. but it also has some pretty good content going for it some really interesting intertwining storylines whereas this is pretty straightforward and you have a lot of characters but there's not a lot of complexity to the story yep okay one if we kind of jump ahead just kind of what we thought and what we might rate it i have to admit this one is one of those films that's it's a it's a little bit of a troublesome one for me because while the film doesn't have a lot going for it, I found it to be a very easy watch mm-hmm. to the point where you're watching it. It's like, it's actually enjoyable to watch. It is, so, and there's there's enough back and forth in it to keep you engaged. Um, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, if you can catch those little quips as they happen, there's some funny stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah, and without, I don't want to give away the ending or anything, but I feel like the ending actually sort of lets it down a little bit because you're like, oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah, and it, it, there's so much. It, I, I think you said it right when you said it builds a mystery really well. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, I, it's, I can't, I'm not sure I can say anything else without giving it away. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, so, sorry. So, but at the same time, I wasn't horribly disappointed. I just, um, I, I wasn't horribly disappointed, but I felt like I would have preferred some more character building in all of the characters, or at least all of the main characters. It felt it felt a bit limited. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, there are times where we watch some of these older films, and I'm kind of thankful that it's as short as they are. They're like <laughs> an hour and everything. But this one, I actually kind of thought... I wish it was an hour and a half. They could have done a little more with it. They could have done mm-hmm. a bit more with it. They could have added at least three scenes that we've discussed already. So, <laughs> <laughs> without without detracting at all from the storyline. Yeah. 
Well, I, I actually kind of like the idea. I like that the fact that uh, Riley is killed off screen because it just it. I don't know. I I thought that was an interesting choice because we've actually kind of seen them all before. So do we really need to see another scene of a a mute brain suddenly not being mute? We we've we've established no, that that is what, happening. What troubles me is that they don't allude to it at all. It's mm. it's almost like he had to travel over the weekend and they were like oh crud he's gone well we'll just kill him off you know <laughs> like oh, the actor maybe. couldn't be there so they didn't lead up to it in in a movie that's relying so heavily on building tension for them to just be like oh yeah and he's dead <laughs> what okay it, it doesn't match at all with the rest of it okay so maybe i like that it how it was done but i don't like how it was handled in the film after it was done i guess i agree was- I, i'll go with that Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't feel like, I mean, and you never see anybody actually die uh, by this murderer's hand. So that's another part of, that's another piece of the mystery is we know the guy's been there, but we never actually see him doing anything. You know, it's so, uh, so for, to have built all that up and have all that inference. And then again, you just have, oh yeah, that guy died. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could have just easily been an unfortunate heart attack had not, and not be related exactly. to the murder at all. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they, if they had even had, you know, him walking into his house and then his shoulders step in front of the camera, you know, that old, that classic scene to show something horrible is going to happen to him. But they don't even go that far. Yeah, that would have actually been really cool. I would have, yeah, just a shadowy figure. I like mm-hmm. that idea. That would have worked. Thanks. I'll be a director. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, as far as ratings go, I mean, because I did find myself really enjoying this, I thought Lionel Atwill um, was inc- insanely watchable. You know, whether he was the talking and very confident and apparently murderous yes. Breen, or mm-hmm. the silent and just you know charming and and complimentary Breen, I thought he was insanely watchable through this all. Very. Um, uh, I forget her name. Uh, the Jerry, the character Jerry, was you know a, a beautiful woman. She was likable, um, very likable. Riley was a lot of fun. I liked the police. The cops were just you know the kind of the cops you want to see in movies like this. They're yes. the very different character. You know the gruff. They were the really smart inspector and the but and, the, and they're responsive. They're not mm-hmm. just brushing people off saying ah I don't believe you. You know they they're going to be yeah. there to help you. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, they're they're intelligent. They're not bumbling. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're really good with all that. Um, I'd actually probably go ahead and give the film. I'll go ahead and give it a three. I think is fair. I mean, it's it's not an outstanding film. I don't think it really deserves higher, but it definitely doesn't deserve to be knocked any lower. Okay. Yeah. So three out of five for me. Three out of five. All right. I'm about to shock you. Okay. I'm going to go lower. (laughs) I don't think I ever rate lower than you do. Uh, I I don't, I can't justify anything better than a two. All right. Um, Especially when you compare it with other movies of its time and there's somewhere it's just, you know, line after line of quick hitters and they're so funny. Or you have some really powerful action or some really powerful acting by a wider cast of character with better writing. It just, it just, it's not a total flop. I won't give it a one. It's worth watching. There's some good build in it, but it doesn't stand out to me. So I feel like I feel like a C is okay, a three for it, but I also feel like it doesn't really rate as much notice as a three would give it. <laughs> okay, well. I, 
I thought and hard I'll, and I'll, long on this. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fully admit that that extra point that I'm giving it over your score is probably just the fact that I just found it so easy to watch that if it is. for some reason I had to watch it again, <laughs> I, could be, I would sit I would gladly sit down and watch it again. Yeah, that's fair enough. And it's kind of one of those where I wouldn't mind sitting down and watching it with somebody and talking about it. Mm-hmm. But unlike some others that we've seen, it's not one where I would go, ooh, you know what I want to watch again? If I was going to pick between Three of a Kind and this, I'd go with Three of a Kind every time. It's sure. much funnier, much more romantic, better lines in it. You know, it's, it's got so much going for it. Whereas this one, it's like, there is one standout performance in it. But that's really all it's got. Is that too harsh? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I think that's, that's all very fair. <laughs> also, while we were talking about, you know, Riley's death, I just realized, you guys are going to laugh, I just realized the actual phrasing of foreshadowing is that shoulder stepping in front of the camera. <laughs> I don't know how, I mean, like, obviously I know what foreshadowing is, but I never thought about the where that phrasing came from. It's shadowing in the foreground that tells you something bad is going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, my brain just exploded. So thank you for being here for that moment. <laughs> no problem. There you go. Orphan Entertainment. It's, it's, it's teaching somebody something somewhere. <laughs> Usually me. <laughs> I know through the uh, through the course of the synopsis and everything, the whole time I was trying to remember. I I really kind of want to write down some quotes from um, uh, Big Trouble in Little China because Jack Burton. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. Thank you. I kept going. Why do I know this name? Well, you know, obviously there's a Jack in my life, but that I was yeah. like Jack Burton. Why does that sound so? Yeah, that's man. Now I feel like we need to just intercut some of that. Yeah, if you you want to talk about it, brains exploding, if at any point. In this film, if this Jack Burton character had said something, oh, well, you know what I always goodness. say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been I, that would have made the movie for me. I would have given it five stars right then. <laughs> I, and even though they didn't know what they were foreshadowing, yeah, yes. got that one in there. Then I still would have given it a five. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah, but like we said, no Sphinx, no Egyptian, no uh, no kinda, riddles. You know, I thought. I thought spoilers. I kept, there's no mysticism. Yeah, no, you know? I kept expecting there to be some kind of a riddle given because that's you know the original Sphinx was supposed to give riddles and right it nev- never happened. I mean, oh maybe that's where riddle, he gets the name the Sphinx because it was a riddle that they couldn't crack. You know how could he? be the murderer and not speak and yeah, yes maybe but he that's... never said a riddle yeah I, mean, I don't know because he's deaf mute so i don't know but like i said i think it was designed <laughs> to put people in the seats and it, and it, it, it worked it, it worked got some 80 years later yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> gotta start reading the synopsis is a little more closely <laughs> <laughs> well i and i will say although i'm i'm the low scorer on this one i don't regret it i think it's one of those that if you want to find a good actor lionel atwell it, it is one of those strange actors that you never would have, you'd never hear his name and think, oh, wow, him. But you've seen him in something, I promise. Exactly. You've absolutely seen him, unless you refuse to watch anything in black and white, because he yeah, stopped making well, movies in 1946. But, you know, well, stop making movies. That's a generous yeah, way to say, put he, it. Yeah. He died in 1946. <laughs> he, he died. But, <laughs> but, you know, if you've seen anything in black and white, you've probably seen him in something. And he's, He's not easy to forget. He's got one of those faces. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a really good actor. 
I, I honestly do. I really think Atwell has some amazing talent, and it's unfortunate that his talent had to be sort of squandered yeah. in the last well, years. Had he had classic good looks, he would have gone on to be a leading man, regardless mm. of scandal. Um, but yeah. it's his his uh, unusual appearance, and he's not unattractive by any means, but he doesn't have that classic Grecian profile. And, no. uh, you know, I think, what is it they say? Beauty overcomes a multitude of sins. Something <laughs> like that. <laughs> but he definitely has been around, and, and I, it blew my mind when I saw that he was in the 1939 Hound of the Baskervilles. You mm-hmm. know, that's the black and white one with the glowing dog, and I was like, what, he's in that? Now I have to go back and watch that as well as yeah, Little I'll have Little to China. <laughs> that's a, that's a Sherlock Holmes film. I know I've seen a few, but that's the yes. one that always pops in my head whenever I think of a Sherlock Holmes movie. Yes, and then Captain Blood. I have to watch that one again, too. Sure. Well, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about The Sphinx from 1933? No, but uh, it, it, it is, for all my low rating, it is worth a watch. And I'd love to hear what other people make of the ending of the movie. I uh, I certainly have my opinion. I'd love to know what other people think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Once this episode drops and everything, I think then the, the spoiler warning can come off if everyone wants to comment. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. So we'll discuss it probably on the Facebook group, which I remind everyone, just go to Facebook.com and search, search for Orphaned Entertainment or send us your thoughts to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me on this one. It was so much fun. Well, thank you. We're we're going to hit just about the length of the movie on this episode. <laughs> you can play them so. simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Maybe this this is the one we should have done a commentary for. There you go. Yeah. It'll happen one day. <laughs> maybe it will. That's going to that's going to be maybe when we get up to like year 10 or something cuz yeah, believe isn't this is this not our first episode for year 7 of Orphan Entertainment? Oh, that's incredible. Lucky 7. Yeah. So we're starting off with one you should see. Keep tuned to see what's coming up next. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening. Please tune in again and until we talk to you next time. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>